through the book of Romans, otherwise known as Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Uh, And Romans, uh, the letter, is essentially a missionary support letter. When you boil it all down, that's pretty much what it is. Uh, Paul believes that God is calling him to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus uh, and his death and his resurrection. Paul believes that God is calling him to take the gospel onto Spain, a place that it hasn't gone to before. Uh, Paul has been called to plant churches and raise up new believers and all these kinds of things. He wants to go to Spain and he sees the Roman church as a means, as, a, as a, an ally, I guess, to help him get there. And so he writes them this letter, the book of Romans, to ask them for help. But he doesn't just say like, hey guys, we're on the same team, how about you help a brother out? Like that's kind of probably how a lot of us would write a, a, a help letter like that. Hey guys, we're, 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 we're talking about the same Jesus here. How about, you, how about you feed me a little money so I can take it on to the next place? That's kind of how mission sports letters work most of the time. But Paul's letter, man, Paul's letter is a masterpiece. It is absolutely massive. I, I tell you all the time, I've said it multiple times throughout the course of the series, it's a masterpiece of first century Near Eastern didactic thought. And that's a mouthful, I get it. But what he's doing is teaching something in this moment. He is teaching something. And what is he teaching? He is casting a massive vision for the global need of the gospel and why God is raising up he and others to take that gospel to all the nations, all the other peoples. It is a massive deal. Romans is a logical argument from beginning to end. And God, is, man, God has really used it in massive ways throughout the history of the world. Over the course of this series so far, we have... Um, We've, we, we've, we've looked a lot at, at how we relate to God. We've looked a lot at, at, at how we relate to God's laws and his commands. And, and we talked about how that relation changes, it shifts when, when we are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection life. We've talked a lot about that. And then last week, well, last week we began to unfold some of the assurances that God has graciously given us that that what we're walking through here is not, not some spiritual game. It's not some charade. It's really real. He's actually working in us. We're not just playing the church thing, right? And the last one, one of those things that we looked at last week, one of those assurances, the very last one we looked at was that, well, that part of our family identity is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That is co-heirs with Christ. God is leading us to walk in the same suffering as Jesus did. And that sounds exciting, right? No? Jesus, he didn't just, he didn't, didn't just pop down for a week in vacation. No, he stepped into a broken humanity and he came for the purpose of serving, right? He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? That's something else that Paul wrote. And so one of the assurances that God gives to his people is to actually suffer in the same way that Jesus did. It's because we carry, uh, we carry that as a part of our family identity. We get to look like Jesus. Now, I highly doubt that anybody in this room was looking for that kind of answer in the assurances department, right? Don't you want all the other options? But hear me. Getting to look like Jesus is no accident. It is an assurance, and it's a massive assurance, because that doesn't just naturally happen in people. That has to be a gift. It has to be something that God is doing. God is doing something in you in that moment. So if you're, if you're thinking to yourself, well, well, I'd really rather not sign up for that kind of assurance. Can't I just have the other ones? 
I'd, I'd really rather do without that kind, thank you very much. Well, Paul actually has more to say about it. We stopped in, in verse 17 last week and just kind of introduced the thought, but Paul, the great gospel logician, he's not done talking. What's the first word of verse 18? Four. So Paul's about to link whatever is about to come next with the assurance suffering of verse 17. So what does it say? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. There was a philosopher in the mid-1800s named John Stuart Mill. Um, he was a known for some, a lot of different things, but he postulated then that because that there was evil in the world, that if there was a God, and he wasn't really sure if there was one, but if there was a God, because of evil in the world, that that God was either unable or unwilling to do anything about it. That either God is good and you know, wants to do good stuff, but you know, he's weak and he's powerless to fix anything because he hasn't fixed it yet, right? Or that he is powerful, he can do something about it, and he just doesn't care. That's a super fun God, right? That God isn't even concerned with our pain. Mill was a utilitarian kind of guy. He didn't really have time for the, for the organized religion thing. And it's not really hard to see why, right? I mean, who would want to worship that God? And I would, I would argue that neither of those two gods are gods at all, right? Neither of those gods are worthy of your worship. And, and this kind of thought process has been picked up over and over and over again by atheists and skeptics alike for the last 200 years. And, and to be honest, I don't really blame them. Like if this was the God that you were prevented, if John Stuart Mills' God or version of God was the God that I was presented, I wouldn't want to follow him either, right? But there... There is a problem. See, there's, there are two massive pieces that are missing from Mills' economy of God. Mills' understanding of how God works and moves and operates, what drives him. And the first missing piece is our own culpability. In other words, our own sin. Whether you want to begin with Paul's argument tracking through the book of Romans, or you just want to go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, to the book of Genesis. The story of the Bible begins with us breaking this place. With us breaking this place. I mean, that's Genesis 3, right? Adam is given dominion over the rest of creation. It's his responsibility to lead the rest of creation in the appropriate response to God, whether that's uh, worship or adoration or obedience. It's his job to lead out the rest of creation in that regard. And what does he do? He immediately bungs it up, right? Like, he, you don't get out of chapter 3 before it goes haywire. It's a short story. <laughs> he immediately messes it up. And so what does God do? God hands down punishments to Adam and Eve, right? In Genesis 3, verse 16, he tells the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Like, no one's going to point to that and go, yeah, that sounds fun. But here's what it does have going for it. It's at least kind of packaged up kind of neatly. Like, like she's going to have this weird animosity and back and forth between her and her husband, but most of the punishment is just kind of resting on her. But then the next verse happens. And in Genesis 
God comes to the man and says, cursed is the what? Those of you who know the story. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground. Like, like the woman, she's, she's got her own thing, and it's bad, and it's not, it's not a good thing. No one wants to celebrate that. We, we, can, we can file that away. But then he comes to the man and is like, cursed is everything because of you. How was your day today? <laughs> you carrying the weight of, of messing up everyone else. <laughs> Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Adam is acting as the vice regent for the rest of creation and Adam fails massively and the creation suffers because of it. The creation suffers because of it. I'm not exaggerating. It's not hyperbole to say that we broke this place. We broke it. We introduced sin into the world, and the world has been straining under the effects of it ever since. And we see the brokenness of the world around us. Whether we're talking about a natural disaster somewhere, or we're talking about the result of some form of human sinfulness. I, I think that every one of our natural bents is to shake our fists at the heavens and look for somebody to blame. Who's responsible for this? Right? I mean, does that naturally come out of you like it comes out of me? Whose fault is this? We want to find someone or something to point the accusing finger at and make them the scapegoat. But for the person whose way of seeing the world is being shaped by the Bible, you eventually come to the conclusion that you're, much as a, you're as much a part of the problem as anybody else is. Your sin contributed to this. We, the collective we, have broken this place. I, the singular I, have broken this place. John Stuart Mills' Economy of God, it kind of, it kind of just falsely assumes that, that we somehow deserve better than what we're currently getting it is not unloving of God, nor does it make him powerless to allow us to wallow for just a little bit in the brokenness we've created for ourselves and seem to be actively pursuing. But there's a second piece missing from Mills' God economy, and it's that God doesn't let us wallow forever. There's a time scale here. Human hearts have this really nasty habit of believing that the most important thing is the thing that's staring them in the face today. Right? It's called the, the tyranny of the right now. We have this nasty habit of believing that the most important thing on the table is the problem we're dealing with at this very moment. And while shaking our fists at the heavens and looking for someone else to blame is the unhealthy response to pain, the healthy response is to long desperately for God to hurry up and fix it because he's promised nothing less than that. In Genesis, uh, Genesis 3, God promises a son that will crush the serpent's head, right? In Romans 8, Paul says that the sufferings of this world aren't worthy of being compared to those future glories. We, we don't pretend that suffering, that pain isn't really there. Folks like Christian scientists believe that. That, that suffering is some kind of unspiritual illusion in this physical world. But rather, we believe that suffering and pain are a temporary reality as we wait for the fulfillment of a better promise. 
See, the Christian's worldview does not ignore the pain of suffering. It transcends it. It transcends it. We, we are given a gloriously beautiful finish line. We are given a promise of a coming day when the glories we will experience will so far outshine our suffering here that we'll actually just forget that it ever happened. We'll forget about them all together. And listen, I, I get that for some of you that, that might feel a little insulting right now. It, it really might, because at this moment, you're in the very middle of your suffering. So you don't want to hear about that stuff. You don't want a future promise right now. You want a right now solution right now. I, I get that. I get that. I, I, in fact, I'd want it too. And to be clear, there are times when it's wise and there are times when it's unwise to wade into this kind of conversation. Like if, if we were having this conversation in a one-on-one, I might choose not to bring it up in this moment. But, but God's word did bring it up, and so I guess we have to deal with it. So let me love you a little bit by pressing in. Allow me a moment to speak pastorally to those of you who don't know which way is up right now. It is in this moment, this very moment, that you don't care about the future promise that you most desperately need to hear about it. Seriously. Like, you most desperately need to be reminded of it because, because it's in this moment that you've taken your eyes off of those future glories and put it on the temporary. You've allowed yourself to believe that what's most important right now is the temporary. And listen, depending on your work ethic, depending on your ability to protect yourself and guard yourself, you may fight it off on the hard day. Some of you have gotten really good at that. But even on your best day, even on your best day, you can never give yourself anything more than a temporary hope that you're strong enough to fulfill. Your temporary hope will eventually run out of gas because temporary things always run out of gas. So you might not want to hear it right now, but, but listen, one of God's good gifts to you, one of God's good gifts to you are the brave souls who gently and patiently and lovingly and at risk to themselves sometimes wade into your pain and gently lift the level of your eyes. It is God's good gift to you that they lift the level of your eyes off of your temporary pain and onto the God who loves you and is playing the long game for your soul. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It is okay Some of you need to hear this. It is okay to long, long for that coming day. It's okay for you to long for for God to hurry up and bring that day sooner. You, you You don't simply have permission for it. You're actually encouraged to long for it. Well, that sounds like an escapist way of thinking, Stephen. Maybe to some. But you're not alone. Not even a little bit alone. Because look who else longs for that day to come in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. 
in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the pain, uh, sorry, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirits, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with what? Patience. All right, so Paul personifies creation here, right? He tells us that the rest of creation echoes the same expectant hope as those who are walking in the middle of suffering. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. He waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That, that final day when the last person that God has ordained to be saved comes to salvation. On that day, God will make all things new. On that day. On that day, Paul says that creation will be set free from its bondage. Set free from what was broken at the fall. All things will be forever repaired and it will finally be set free from the futility that it was subjected to. Futility, man, it's... You probably never thought through this, but it's a tragic word. Futility. Like in Greek mythology, there's, a, there's an evil king named Sisyphus, which probably got him picked on in school. Um, but in Greek mythology, there's this evil king named Sisyphus, and as punishment from the gods, he's, he's forced to, to roll uh, a giant boulder up a hill forever. And the boulder's just big enough to take every ounce of his strength. He's got to strain against it, and he's got to fight against it, and he gives it everything he's got. And so he pushes, and he pushes, and he pushes, and he pushes it, and then he finally gets to the top of the hill, and the boulder rolls right back down. He's got to start all over again. Over and over and over again forever. The idea that, the idea that creation is broken and will just, well, it'll just forever be that way because, I mean, you know, it's just the way it is. Just the way it is. Everything is futile. Nothing has purpose. Nothing has an eternal reality that will be redeemed one day. The idea that creation is futile is absolutely tragic, guys. Tragic. Worldview sounds more like an eternal punishment from vindictive man-made gods. It's also the only thing that a humanist worldview could ever offer up for the pain and suffering of the real world. Futility. One famous atheist writer once claimed that we simply dance to the music of our DNA. And that might have a little bit of a poetic lilt to it, I'll give it that, but what he meant by that statement was that there's no cause, there's no end, there's nothing bigger and better and more beautiful than us, there's simply you. Forever alone in a universe that has no concern whether you're there or not. Crush or be crushed, I don't care. Survive, don't survive, yeah, whatever. Futility is tragic. And the Bible teaches that creation experiences some of that futility. But the key difference, the giant difference between a biblical worldview and a humanistic worldview is that word some. Paul says that there is coming a day 
when a creation that was subjected to futility will be forever turned upside down. There's coming a day when Jesus will make all things new. What was broken at the fall will be finally and forever repaired. Creation might have been subjected to futility for a little while because of our sin, but it wasn't done so without hope. It wasn't done so without a promise. So it longs for that coming day. It begs for it, eagerly awaits it, Paul says, that coming day day when God will bring his children home and make all things new. Paul says in verse 22 that it's under the pangs of childbirth right now. That's that's quite a picture, right? Those of you who have experienced that yourself, you're starting to wonder if Paul knows what he's talking about, right? But everyone who's ever been in that room, even those who are just there, like I was, okay? Everyone in the, the, who's been in that room kind of walks through the same trajectory, right? Pain builds, tension builds, and it builds, and it builds, and it builds, and it builds. And you don't think the baby's ever going to come because it just keeps building and building and building and building. And then nurses come in, nurses go out, and all this chaos is happening. But then, in this beautiful moment, a baby finally arrives. And the tone of the room changes, doesn't it? All that tension, all that Pressure is suddenly gone. And the room explodes with joy. Right? Follower of Jesus, do you long, and I mean desperately long, for the day when Jesus will make all things new? You're not alone. The whole of creation does as well. And the tension is building and the pain is building and and all these things continue to build and you don't think it's ever going to come, but then one day, an explosion of joy. And so we have hope, right? We've, We've talked about hope in here before, even in the course of this series. Hope in the Bible is not the same thing as hope as defined in the world around us, in the culture around us. Um, in, in the world that we live in, hope is just kind of a synonym for a wish, right? And so we hope for things that we would like to see happen. We hope for this to happen. We hope for that to happen. But hope in the Bible is not that at all. Hope in the Bible is a word of confidence. It's an expectant assurance based on the proof of God's good character. Do we see the fulfillment of his promise yet? <laughs> nope. Do we, do we think that there's going to be a quick end to our suffering? Yeah, it doesn't look like it. Wish there was. Probably not. But we can wait for that day. And we can wait for it with patience because we know that he is good. We know that he is faithful and we know that he always, always fulfills his promises. Ah, Stephen, you don't understand. Like, like, it's so hard right now. I don't think you really wrap your head around the kind of suffering I'm going through. Yeah, you're, you're probably right. I don't. I, I'm never going to figure it all the way out. I'm never going to know perfectly. Empathy this side of heaven, this side of heaven is impossible. This side of heaven. But just because I can't empathize doesn't mean that you're alone. Look at verse 28. 
or verse 26, excuse me. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Guys, our frames are weak. If you didn't know that already, we probably need to have a different conversation after we're done here. We are feeble and frail. Feeble and frail. We are spiritual weaklings in need of someone to hold our hand lest we fall away. I think anybody paying attention to themselves will understand that, that idea immediately, right? Like no one has to really argue that. The question, though, that needs to be answered is do you think God knows that? And secondly, do you think he's accounted for it? Paul says that there are times when you're, when you're going to be in over your head and, and in those moments, God the Father is not seated on a faraway throne trying to figure out why you haven't figured it out yet. But rather, God the Spirit dwelling in you is holding your hand along the way lest, so you don't fall. Even in those moments when you don't, you don't even really know how to get the words out, Spirit's got you covered there too. He's got it, man. You you may be frail, but your God is not. You may be weak, but oh, but he is strong, right? Good. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, wouldn't it be better? Like, like, hear me out. Wouldn't it be better if he just took all the bad things away, all the hard moments, right? Like, like, think about it. Like, wouldn't it be better if he made all the bad things go away and just made it easier for me to follow him? Like, like I really feel like that would streamline my walk with Jesus. Like, like shouldn't, shouldn't God try that as an option? And any of you who've ever been responsible for teaching someone else already know the answer to that question, right? What does verse 28 say? And we know, not... This is an ivory tower theology. Paul's talking about living experience here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So we pick on the prosperity gospel in here from time to time. uh, Well, honestly, on a pretty regular basis. We don't do that to be mean. We we don't do that to be divisive. Uh, We do that because what they preach will... End up will ultimately land a lot of people in hell, and that should matter to us. Like, like we can't like look away from that and act like it doesn't matter. TV preachers have a nasty habit of taking incredibly important, God-glorifying, worship-inducing verses in the Bible and twisting them, turning them on their heads to into something that we can use to exalt and celebrate ourselves rather than God. That's kind of the scheme over and over again. And Romans eight twenty eight is one of the most egregious examples of that in our world. It gets abused all the time. All the time, man. It's commonly tossed around as a God's going to change your circumstances kind of verse. Just you wait. Suffering is not what God has planned for his people. And so if you just have enough faith, if you love him and have enough faith, he'll turn your life around and you'll be walking in blessing again before you know it. Just you watch. By the way, if you sow a little faith seed right here, it'll speed the process up. 
kickstart a little blessing for you. Not only do those TV preachers completely ignore the previous first half of the chapter of, of Romans chapter 8, like, which, which argues that suffering is part of the world we live in right now. Not only do they ignore uh, Romans 8.17 that we talked about last week, that, that where we learn that suffering is a part of our family identity. Because they also, know, they also ignore the very next word that Paul says. The very next word. What is it? What does verse 29 start with? Four. Paul's not done talking. Verse 28 doesn't exist in a vacuum. Paul is about to connect these two thoughts together. There, there is a means and an end here. And so the question needs to be asked, what is the good that God is working us towards? What is that good? Like, like, like quantify it. What actually is it? The prosperity gospel preacher believes that it's some kind of material blessing, that it's the undoing of pain and suffering in the world that we live in instead so we can live our best life now, right? What does the Apostle Paul say it is? Verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, shaped to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So let me make it explicitly clear this morning. It, it, it's not the only place in the Bible that we can point to this to, but it's definitely the one that God put in front of us this morning. God's grand plan for your life is to be conformed, shaped into the image of his son. Priority number one for him concerning you to conform you, to make you look like Jesus. God is working all things, all things for the good of those who love him. But your greatest good is not some material thing this side of heaven. And even though it sounds a lot better, it's not even the escaping of pain. The escaping of suffering God is working all things, including your suffering, for your greatest good. God is using your suffering to lovingly shape you into the image of Jesus. In a world that is broken by sin, guys, we're surrounded by tragedy, right? Like, like if you're not walking through it today, like, I'll catch up with you next week, we'll deal with your problems then. We're, we're surrounded by tragedy. You'll get your turn. In a world that is broken by sin, not only, not only have Christians been promised a gloriously beautiful finish line, but guys, we've also been promised that not one second of it is futile. Not one moment for the Christian, your suffering is never, ever in vain. He's using it. He's using it. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's plan for you existed long before there was a you. Long before there was a you. He placed his affections on you, and he is working all things for your good, which leads me to one of maybe my absolute favorite verse in the book of Romans. Verse 30. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that from eternity past, God is big enough and he is strong enough and he is smart enough and he is good enough to bring his people home. That's what he's saying. His his plans can't be thwarted by you or me. They can't be overpowered by you, me, or anything else. There's no spiritual force in this world that is a match for his good will. There's no incompetence that I or anybody else can keystone cop our way into messing up his plan. Sending his plan into failure somehow. I think God has ever had to regroup huddle up the Trinity and go, guys, we didn't see this coming. What are we going to do about this? You got any good ideas? No, he is God. And he is good. So he's got it. He's got it. And, And so all those whom he called, all those he chose, he called. He summoned them to salvation. And all those he called, he justified, right? A word that we've been looking at a lot through our Just and Justifier series. He declared them to be innocent through their faith in Jesus and his death on the cross. And all those he justified, he also glorified. We will forever, and I mean forever, be united to Jesus in resurrected bodies and without sin. And Paul is so convinced of this future reality that he just goes ahead and speaks of it in the past tense glorified not will be glorifying it's just so resolute for him he's like ah let's just go ahead and put it in the past tense there it's as good as done because it's not dependent upon you it's dependent upon the author writing the story and he is faithful and true And he will accomplish all things he says he will accomplish because he always, always keeps his promises. So what do we do do with our text this morning? Like, how how do we respond to God's word today? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I think your response is to press into God. We say that every week. It's because it's the response every week. We press in, right? We press in. For some of you, some of you, you're in the very middle of the storm right now. Or this week's storm, just to be specific. You're in the very middle of the storm. And so in love for you, I tell you, look up. Look up. Not because the pain isn't real, but because it truly is a better view when you look up. It's better. Can you echo Paul's words this morning? For I consider that the sufferings of this world aren't even worthy of comparing with the future glories. If not, it's, Is it because you let some smaller thing take your eyes off of those glories? You need something more than a temporary hope, and so in love for you, look up today. For others of you, you're not in the middle of the storm right now. But let's be honest, it won't be long until you will be, right? Welcome to a post-Genesis 3 world. And so your response to Romans chapter 8 is to file it away, I guess for that later moment, but also too, 
to be the one that lovingly and sometimes at risk to yourself wades into the world of those who are suffering. Brothers and sisters who God is calling you to lovingly, lovingly pursue today. Who has God put in your world right now that God is calling you to wade in? I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. We'll have some leaders down front here if we can talk and pray with you if that would serve you in some way. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can respond to God's word too, but your response looks a lot different. It really does. Um, these promises that Paul talks about, the, that glorious, beautiful finish line and, and that God is using your suffering to shape you into looking like Jesus, those are incredible promises, but those are promises for his people. Those are promises for his people, those, those who don't know Jesus yet, they, they live in the same broken world as everybody else does, but that God-given hope, it doesn't belong to you yet. It's not yours, but it can be. It can be. You can respond to God's word. You can respond to God's call this morning by meeting Jesus. By default, we are all separated from God because of our sin. That is the, that is the natural stasis of who we are, but God did something about it. Jesus, God in the flesh, lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living, and he died on the cross as a substitute for the sin, to pay the sin debt that you owe. He did that for you, and he calls you now to respond to him in faith. I hope you will this morning believe that he's who he says he is, and he did what he said he would do, make sacrifice for your sin. So you can respond to him in faith this morning and you can do that right where you're sitting. You don't need a pastor or a priest. That's not something that you need some kind of mediator to accomplish. That's between you and Jesus. But listen, I'm, I'll be down here if you want to talk about it. I'd love to walk you through what those steps look like. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let's all respond to God's word today, however he's calling us to. Father, you're good to us. Thank you so much for the scriptures. Thank you for Romans 8. We live in a world that is torn apart by our sin. Not someone else's sin, my sin. Not someone else's junk, my junk. But God, you are good. And you love us with an unfathomable love. And even though we're responsible for jacking up this place, you will get the glory for fixing it all. And so God, we wait patiently for that day. We long for it. In the moments where suffering hits us broadside, we desperately yearn for it. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The God in the meantime God, in the meantime, let us not see it as some terrible thing that has pulled us away from you, but rather the thing that you are using to shape us into being like you. God, you are bigger and smarter and wiser in all the things better than us. You are playing the long game for our soul, and so there are days when I think you're kind of being a jerk. But in your goodness, you are lovingly shaping me. 
lovingly drawing me closer to yourself. And so for us, those of us who are in the middle of the storm right now, would, we, would you help us see where our rest comes from? We don't want temporary hopes. We want you. We don't want temporary solutions. We want you forever. God, show yourself to be good to those who are hurting today. Help those who are not walking through that today lean in and love and serve those who are. God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known to them? Would you call and would you justify even in this room this morning? You are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.